0: Magnus Podcast, episode 34, I Just Had Three Beers, with Dr. Timothy Furlan. John John okay, so technically we had one monk beer, and as you know, monastic beer is much stronger and more potent than human beer so is the equivalent of three beers basically one large beer divided into three which makes three beers but in any case it was a delicious beer and an even better discussion and after you hear this discussion you're going to say to yourself i want to join this class bioethics and aquinas with dr timothy Ferlin in the magnus fellowship which might or might not be full by now i'm not sure you can beg nicole say nicole please let me in the class with dr timothy Ferlin." We'll see. And if you're not a fellow yet, you can become one today at magnusinstitute.org. Become a fellow today. Tell your friends about it. Uh, We have a lot of fellows, and you can become one today. It's good people doing good things, and it'd be even better if you were a part of it. Full classes, live, interactive, as free as they are freeing. Join us today at magnusinstitute.org. You can become a fellow today, and you'll be glad you did so here's a discussion we have with Dr. Timothy Ferlin. We cover a lot of ground here, so please enjoy all of it. Bye bye. Welcome, Dr. Timothy Ferlin. Uh, it's it's great to have you here. You've got an upcoming course in the Magnus Fellowship called Bioethics and Aquinas, and we're going to get into that as well as some other questions. Uh, but I do want to introduce you, especially to our fellows and to our listening audience here, because uh, you're kind of a big deal. I feel like if you were being introduced in a movie. You would be introduced by a general type through exposition in a spy drama, uh, <laughs> reading sure. reading off your your bona fides. So, uh, and I'll try to do that here. But you are currently the Burnett Family Distinguished Chair in Ethics and Director of the Center for Ethical Leadership at the University of Saint Thomas in Houston. You previously studied uh, classical liberal arts at Thomas Aquinas College, and then you pursued graduate studies at the University of Chicago, uh, the Sorbonne, uh, in Trinity College in Dublin, and, the S- and you're a Swiss Confederation scholar in F- in Freiburg. You've also studied in Munich and Athens, and then you're a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard Medical School, editor of the Harvard Bioethics Journal. And have a master's in bioethics from Harvard. Uh, previously visited uh, f- a professor of philosophy at Xavier University and Boston College. So you've pretty much done uh, done it all. And and I guess after reading your your CV, uh, I'm wondering how does an Aristotelian from Thomas Aquinas College sneak into Harvard? Are you are you sort of a, an oddball there, or is that indicative of a of a new trend in the Ivy League that we can all be grateful for?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I think you know my path into bioethics was through ethical theory. I wrote a dissertation on the idea of moral luck uh, and developing an Aristotelian approach to moral luck. So, moral luck is the idea that luck alone is capable of. Uh, placing us in situations in which we cannot help but commit some horrific uh, or tragic or evil action, uh, and luck alone is capable of decisively determining the moral worth of an individual uh, and or his or her actions. And so, um, you know, I, I was very interested in ethical theory. I was interested in these questions about, uh, you know, moral tragedy, about the problem of dirty hands. I was interested in the question of conflicting moral duties and obligations, what happens when, when two moral obligations come to conflict, you know, for instance, we, we can talk about so-called vital conflicts, right? So, there, you know, on the one hand, there's a principle of, of you know, saving the savable, right? Save those who can't be saved. There's also a principle, uh, sometimes referred to as the Pauline principle, that one may not do evil, that good may come. So that's a very important moral principle that, that seems to block any type of consequentialism, right? There's limits to what we can do in order to save lives or to maximize well-being or maximize, you know, some some total of preference satisfaction, so, uh, you know, there's many examples we can think of where moral duties or obligations come into conflict. And so um, I was very interested in these types of questions, and it really seemed to me that the people that were really dealing with these questions were were the bioethicists. And I think they were forced to deal with them uh, just by um, the reality of, of contemporary clinical practice and, and contemporary medical practice. So, you know, I've served on several uh, clinical ethics committees now at uh, Cincinnati Children's, Uh, You know, I've begun serving on uh, a couple of committees in Texas now, uh, Texas Children's Hospital, which is now the largest pediatric hospital uh, in the world. And I'm I'm doing a lot of work in pediatric ethics, especially. And, uh, you know, you see these conflicts all the time, right, where, uh, you know, no matter what you do, there's going to be some type of a a kind of moral remainder, right? There's going to be some type of, uh, you know, no one walks away with, with perfect resolution, right? There's going to be you know, some type of harm inflicted upon someone. And I think this is one reason why utilitarianism uh, is, is certainly very influential in contemporary ethics and contemporary society as a whole, is because when you're faced with these situations, I think a temptation here is just simply to focus on, on harm reduction, so limiting the amount of, of harm so, that's being So done. can you,
0: for, our, for our, the sake of our audience and our host, can you uh, define the Cliff's Notes version of what is utilitarianism?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, I would say utilitarianism is, is a broad family of theories, which focuses on maximizing the overall amount of whatever has intrinsic value. So if you talk to different utilitarians, they're going to give you different answers as to what has intrinsic value. The classical account going back to the 19th century, uh, in a figure like Jeremy Bentham or James Mill, who's the father of John Stuart Mill, uh, they tend to focus on just pleasure. All right, so Bentham famously argued that, you know, pleasure alone has intrinsic value, pain has intrinsic disvalue, and we can add up all these various pleasures and pains, we can aggregate them and commensurate them, and uh, we have a moral duty, there's a moral obligation to choose that course of action, which creates the, the greatest overall amount of pleasure to pain, right, the, the best ratio. Uh, John Stuart Mill will come along, and, and you know, at that time, utilitarianism was facing a tremendous amount of, of critique, it's, it you know, still does to this day, it's faced you know, withering criticism over the last 175 years. And uh, Mill, I think, took the theory in a more Aristotelian direction, where he wanted to argue that there actually is a hierarchy of, of pleasures, right? And not all pleasures are equal. This was a real break with uh, Bentham, who had embraced what we might call a quantitative hedonism. Uh, John Stuart Mill will defend what's called a qualitative hedonism in the argument that there are some pleasures which are richer, uh, that are more... Um, you know, humane than others. Uh, and that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Bentham famously said that, um, you know, pushpin is as good as poetry, right? So pushpin was a game that guys would play in the taverns in the 19th century. You know, they would, uh, you know, drink heavily and, and play this game. And, and, uh, he thought the pleasure that came from that was equal to the pleasure you might get from, you know, going to the symphony orchestra or, uh, you know, going to the art museum or falling in love or you know, creating a, a work of art, something like that. So, um, you know, Mill really pushed back against that and argued that no, in fact, there is a there is a hierarchy of of pleasures. Um, I would say in the 20th century, the most dominant form of utilitarianism is what's called preference utilitarianism. So I think a good example of that would be a figure like Peter Singer from Princeton University, uh, R.M. Hare from who held the chair in moral philosophy at Oxford for many years, uh, and the focus there is is on um, choosing that course of action which maximizes the uh, overall sum total amount of, of preference satisfaction. But a key point there is they don't – at least they claim not to judge preferences, right? So that's very important, right? They want to say we're not in the business of judging preferences. What matters to us is simply uh, aggregating these, these preferences and then choosing that course of action, which um, maximizes the greatest possible number of, of preferences. And I think that can take you uh, in a very dark direction very So quickly. is
0: pleasure the highest good or the, or the only good for the utilitarian?
1: Uh, if you are a classical hedonist, mm-hmm. right? the you know, one thing that possesses intrinsic Was Bentham? Value. Um, Bentham is, yeah, he's probably the best example we have of uh, a kind of classical hedonistic approach of, of quantitative now, hedonism. Now, is
0: Bentham the guy that has his body rolled out at the board meetings to this day?
1: Uh, he is in a museum in yeah. London, if you go to university. College London, you can see his mummy. He's he's there to this. Day, and so he
0: didn't want to. He didn't want to miss a board meeting. Uh, what pleasure is there in that? That strikes me as as the pursuit of a higher good, maybe as as Plato would have it, namely honor. Uh, even even among the dead, right? That the but there's no there's no definite pleasure that we could posit from that decision of Bentham. So what would he say about
1: that? Or or honor as such that there's no pleasure that comes from, from being in a board meeting.
0: I mean, he, he, he wants his, he wants his corpse to still be present. I mean, it's a joke, right? But there's no pleasure uh, there. There is something maybe higher, namely honor. And so what is, so for Plato, right? And if you read the Republic, mm-hmm. I'm sure you have several mm-hmm. times. Well, there, there's this sort of order of pleasure and then honor and then wisdom um, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. eros, Stumos Logos. And so pleasure is a good, but what does the utilitarian do about these things that seemingly one is willing to forsake pleasure for such as honor or even die for?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a perceptive critique of of utilitarianism, right? And uh, there's more to life than simply maximizing pleasure. So this is a really important theme uh, in the contemporary debate about biotechnology, where, you know, something like Soma from the Brave New World may be coming. You know, I would not be surprised if, you know, the next, in the near future, right, we have, you know, major pharmaceutical companies presenting and marketing something like Soma uh, that would give you a kind of a dopamine high and a serotonin high, uh, and that feeling of of euphoria, that feeling of elation, uh, you know, potentially at at every moment, right? So uh, scientists, doctors have also created uh, a pump that could be used to treat diabetes uh, where that, that could be surgically implanted uh, and that would control insulin levels in your body. And that would be a wonderful thing. That would be a great good, uh, you know, because a lot of people don't don't properly treat their diabetes and they lose limbs and they lose, you know, fingers and things like that. But that very same technology could also be used to create something like a dopamine pump that would be surgically implanted in your brain. It would give you this this constant feeling of, of euphoria, right, this constant feeling of, of pleasure. And so the question is, you know, what's missing in that as, as a conception of human well-being, Right. Is there a kind of, of experience requirement, right? Um, and, you know, I think if you look at a figure like Plato Aristotle, you step back and look at Aristotle's account of, of eudaimonia, what he calls eudaimonia, um, there's a real focus on on achievement, on accomplishment, right? For him, eudaimonia is, is the greatest thing that – for him, it's an activity. It must take place over the length of one's life. But, um, you know, what have you accomplished? What have you achieved if you spend the rest of your life laying on a couch, you know, passed out twitching, right? If you're you're taking something like Soma. Right. So uh this is a, a serious concern that I have. Uh that you know we may be on a path, you know, you mentioned Plato. Something like Plato's Cave may be being constructed, maybe uh being dug right now as we speak. If you look at the drugs that are coming, if you look at virtual reality, uh you know, the new uh if you look at video games in the nineteen seventies and you look at even artificial today, wounds, uh, right? yeah I mean, so like, you're um, talking
0: uh, physically that we could be headed for some sort of matrix uh harvesting system,
1: yes, yeah, something like that. uh this is something that that does certainly worry me. There's a really powerful book by yabal and Noah Harari called Homo Deus uh, that's really a, a chilling book in many ways. I think uh, a lot of people read that book and they're they're horrified. I think Harari's voice in that book is is a bit strange. Uh, you know, at times he seems to sort of, uh, you know, gleefully recount or, or, or sort of narrate the path that we may be on. Um, but you know, if you look at, um, you know, I think a really troubling question here is, you know, what happens when the prisoners grow to love the bars of their cage, right? When they're not dragged into the cave kicking and screaming, but they they willingly build the cave and construct the cave, and grow to love the cave, right? And this is this is an important part of, of Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, and what happens to the, the one person who escapes and goes back into the cave, um, knowing that, that things will likely not turn out very well for for him. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very, very concerned about this. Um, I think this is going to be one of the most important issues of our time going forward is, is the biotechnological revolution. I, I think we are at a, a point very similar uh, to where we were with the PC revolution, I would say, in the early 80s, mid 80s. Uh, You know, when Steve Jobs and and, uh, Steve Wozniak were in their garage there in Cupertino building the first Macs, I think we're at a kind of similar point with biotechnology. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jennifer Doudna or George Church. Uh, They just won the Nobel Prize, or Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize for inventing CRISPR. Uh, I think it's one of the most important discoveries in the history of biology. It's an absolute game changer. It gives us, for the first time, the ability to engage in very precise gene editing uh, and it really answers, you know, a common objection in the past was about unintended consequences, uh, you know, that if you start tampering with the genome, uh, there's going to be downstream unintended consequences and side effects. I think that still is an objection, but as our power grows uh, and as these techniques become more precise, I think that type of argument rooted in what's sometimes called the precautionary principle is going to be less effective. We're going to have to find other ways to to push back against using this this awe-inspiring godlike power that, that we okay. have now. So supply. there's a
0: lot to unpack here. Um, utilitarianism yeah. is pretty much the air we're breathing right now when it comes to the moral discussions around technology and the human body. Is that fair to say?
1: I was say even beyond that, I think it's it It's in the air that we breathe, as you said. I mean, I think it influences public policy. It influences really every aspect of, of life. You look at economics as a discipline, I think there's – I think tons of utilitarian assumptions embedded within economics as an academic discipline. Okay. As well. So,
0: so we, I want to get into this, but how do you have a job for one in your field? I mean, how, do, how did you do it? Um, and, no. and, and how, how do you continue to do it? Uh, mm-hmm. And are you, you have a target on your back. You're, you're obviously swimming upstream in the, as far as the intellectual currents go. And then, and then the second follow-up question to that would be, um, is are these trends at all reversible, reversible from a tactical perspective? Is this even a discussion worth having or has the battle been lost?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first question, um, you know, I think I just pursued my passions. You know, I was very passionate about philosophy, about ethical theory, um, and philosophical anthropology, uh, just continue to pursue my passions. Uh, you know, I can't say I, I planned it all out in advance. I think I just, um, continued to, you know, I just kept working hard and, and opportunities arose. You know, initially when I went to Europe, I was going to spend one year there. I ended up spending eight years in Europe, right. And that was just, uh, you know, I just won a series of fellowships and, and just kept going and studying. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I think if you really know your stuff, right. And I think if you are a good colleague and you have, you know, I think collegiality is an important virtue and you do really listen to other people and you take seriously viewpoints other than your own and you do question your own presuppositions. And um, then, then, yeah, I mean, people will uh, welcome that and respond to that. So I, I I do try to to live those, those virtues of of collegiality. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I think if you, if you do have a serious background, you do work hard and you are a good colleague, I think people will, will respond to that. It's not to say that it's always easy. Um, You know, I think uh, at times you, I think if you can really identify where and why precisely that you disagree with someone, that that's a significant achievement, especially today. Right. So if you can identify, okay, the reason why we're clashing is we have two different conceptions of dignity. Right. And that's why we kind of keep, you know, uh, you know, conflicting with each other. I, I think that is that is a significant achievement. Um, so that that's I guess the kind of first question. The, the second question has to do with um the these trends that that um are accelerating. Uh, I would say I go back and forth here. I think uh if you read some like Francis Fukuyama, his book our posthuman future which which I recommend I think it's it's one of the more profound treatments of, of these subjects. Um, that book was published in 2003. I think at that point, Fukuyama was hopeful that we could regulate many of these technologies that the model that he uses is, is, nuclear weapons. He says, we need to regulate these better technologies, at the same level that we regulate nuclear weapons, right? So you can't go on eBay and buy, you know, some enriched plutonium, something like yep. that. Right. You can go online and buy a gene editing kit. Yeah. Or a kidney. Right? You do this. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's another issue too, is, is uh, medical tourism, uh, you know, people flying over to India to buy a kidney or maybe not right now with the, the pandemic, but um, you know, other parts of the developing world um, that that's a whole other yeah. issue, the ethics of organ transportation and, and whether organ should be sold in free market or whatever. But um, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's one school of people, Daniel Allen here at Harvard gave a lecture last year where she argued along similar lines to Fukuyama that we needed a very, very high level of regulation something analogous to nuclear weapons to, to regulate these technologies. Other people like Harari uh, seem to think that the time for agency is over, that there may have been a time back in the 1960s, 1970s, something like that, where we could have stopped Pandora's box from opening. Uh, he seems to think now that the best we can really hope for is to brace for impact, really, that, um, you know, the time for, for decision-making is really what do you, ended. What do you think? That, well, I think we're already seeing it now. I mean, I think we saw this in China with the, the twins that were genetically edited uh, by that rogue scientist. Uh, we're seeing chimeras being created now as well. This just happened less than a month ago. We had the first uh, ape, uh, human chimera created, the first transgenic uh, species. Um, I think it would take some type of international agreement analogous to uh, a kind of nuclear weapons treaty that would – everyone would have to buy into. So that would include the Chinese, it would include the North Koreans. It would include everybody. Right. I think the issue is once a particular individual or individuals or a nation begins to go down that path, I think it's going to be very difficult for the rest of us to stop. Right. So if the Chinese or the North Koreans begin to genetically engineer their citizens, which they've already done right. China is
0: already genetically modifying its army.
1: I'm not, you may know more about it than I do. I, I would not be surprised if that were true. I, I think there, there's a lot of research being done on that. I know DARPA, uh, you know, is a major, major supporter of biotechnological research. Uh, you know, I think the U.S. has certainly taken a, a very strong interest in that possibility. Um, and I think once a handful of people, some like a Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, right, once they start to go down that path, uh, I think it's going to be very hard for the rest of us to resist Right, so you know if we see people that are very wealthy people that are politically connected socially connected um, begin to go down this path right and they literally begin to inscribe these these advantages into their genome and the genomes of their children right or the rest of us going have much of a choice at that point so there is an important question here about distributive justice right who has access to these technologies um, that's one way to, to frame this I, I think that is important but I think the larger question here is whether or not anyone should be engaging in in biotechnological enhancement right is there a, a kind of deontological constraint here uh, that should be present um, you know so somebody like Michael Sandel wrote an important book uh, called the Case Against Perfection where he argues that n- that no one should be engaging in this it doesn't matter the question of distributive justice is secondary uh, and and whether you're rich or poor or you know whatever it is uh, no one should be genetically engineering their children because it radically disfigures or destroys the the proper relationship between parents and children. For him, he's going to argue that the the proper norm is one of unconditional love, right? And he's very, very concerned that that norm of unconditional love is being lost today. He has a lot to say about what he calls the Promethean impulse, which I think is very interesting. I think this relates to St. Augustine's account of the libido dominandi in book one of the city of God, uh, which, you know, Augustine argues is really one of the deepest wounds of original sin. And, uh, that the Promethean impulse is this desire to to dominate, to master, to control, uh, to bend others and to bend the natural world to our will, and he sees that spreading like a disease, and it's just spreading to one aspect of, of human life after another. Uh, you know, he sees this in interpersonal relationships. He sees this uh, with our in our relationship with the natural world as well. Uh, that we see the natural world as just so much raw material for us to dominate, to control, uh, and that we we fail to see. It, as possessing any intrinsic value, uh, and he's very concerned that this is spilling over now even in, into the parent-child relationship. Right. So, I think that is a promising line of argument through, I would say, a kind of virtue ethics or virtue-centered approach, and focusing on the, the kind of distortion of the disfigurement of of the one who engages in the engineering process, the designing process. I, I think we, at times, we focus so much on the one who is designed, and that is important, that we lose sight of of how that might affect the designer. Right. How does that affect and shape those who are engaged in that project of uh, controlling really every single aspect of their life? So
0: this is something that I thought was really worthwhile in um, Pope Francis's Encyclical Laudato Si, the chapter on the technocratic Uh paradigm. And it's this uh, impulse to, as you say, master, but it's also an impulse to be mastered by that which we have created. And and yeah. and then and then further, it's, I think this is not in his text, but the implication is that we have this choice to become one in the flesh with our creation or our creator. And so mm-hmm. we see this movement in technology to oh, it's 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 wearable tech for now, right? But pretty soon it's going to going to be implantable tech. And that's right, and yeah. we, and and then further, that's connected to the way we we do commerce, we interact politically, um, we buy and sell. So, you know, if I go to the grocery store and give a debit card and and I say, sorry, sir, uh, your card has been declined. Okay, fine. My card has been declined, but the day is coming when they say to me, I'm sorry, sir, you have been declined because the, the the movement is, the movement is from the technology becoming just this thing that we're always carrying around with us to this thing that is going to be one with our flesh by our own demand. And so, and this is what St. John would call the mark of the beast, obviously. And, and it's even hard to have this conversation without sounding like you're having a tinfoil hat, but but we're there. Right. And so I guess if there is one way to reject it, just something you or I could do, well, you can do more than I, but something that anybody could do is, you know, if your iPhone wants your face, say, no, thank you. If your iPhone wants your thumbprint, say, no, thank you. And any chance Mm -hmm. you have, right. Even if, if, you know, don't, you know, wear your Bluetooth headset so much, right. I mean, it sounds silly, but anything you can do to sort of remove the technology from your body, the safer that distance Mm -hmm. is the better.
1: Yeah, a lot a lot to say here. So I mean, one thing that comes to mind uh, is the great film Gattaca. I, I think it's really a profound film. That screenplay was written by Andrew Nichol. I know Dr. Leon Cass, who was a teacher of mine in Chicago, was a real fan of that film as well. And there, there's a great scene where Ethan Hawke's character, uh, his dream is to become an astronaut and, and to, to I think see to to fly to I think Jupiter. And um, he is what's he's a so-called godchild. So he was conceived naturally by his parents. His younger brother was. Uh, you know, created through artificial reproductive technologies. He was genetically engineered. Uh, and so it's set in the near future where you have a kind of genetic uh, Jim Crow. You have a kind of um, genetic caste system where those who have been genetically engineered, they, they look like, you know, supermodels and they're all Olympic athletes and the genius level IQs. And and the the godchildren, they're, they're just normal human beings. They have myopia, they have heart conditions, they have asthma. They're just, just normal people and uh they're they're facing a kind of jim crow type scenario a kind of apartheid system where they they sort of bounce around and uh, they work as itinerant farm workers and janitors and things like that and so he applies to to nasa to become an astronaut and they they ask for a blood sample so you're constantly giving a you know a blood sample and he goes up and he gives his blood sample and it comes back as invalid and that's what they call these, they call them invalids and they say uh he says well they they tell him, well, we don't need you. And he says, well, what about the interview? And they say, that was the interview. We know everything we need to know about you. You are invalid. This is going to your point here about, you know, it's not just your credit card being declined, but you have been declined. Right. And I think we're increasingly judging people based on these, the genetic or somatic criteria. I think that's really what, when people critique the idea of playing God, I think that's important. So Dr. Cass, Leon Cass has a really uh, profound essay that we will read, and that uh, I highly recommend. Uh, it's called "The Age of Genetic Technology Arrives," and he really responds to that critique of the plain God objection. So, some people say, "Well, that's you know, uh, you're you're bringing in theological premises that that I don't share." Um, but what's what he's really saying there with the playing God objection is basically that no human being should have the power in life and life and death over. Another human being, right? To say that person should not exist, right? That their very existence is is a kind of affront uh, and that they can be killed with impunity. That's really the heart and the essence of the plain God objection. Another point that comes to mind is, is C.S. Lewis's profound essay, The Abolition of Man, which I, I highly recommend as well. Uh, very prophetic work. Lewis wrote that back in the 1940s uh, where he argues that there is no mastering of nature as such, Right, so people even hit in his time at Oxford, you know, at, at Magdalen College, and that, people please? running around.
0: There, there isn't what? Say that again.
1: please. There, there is no mastering of nature as such, but there is only the mastery of some men over other men. Right, and that's an ironclad law. Right, so people were running around at that time saying, "We've done it. We've, we've conquered nature. We've mastered nature. Finally, once and for all." And Lewis is saying, no, this will always be the mastery of some individuals over other individuals, right? Whether that's, you know, kind of tech overlords, whether that's people making the technology, whether that's, you know, the politicians in charge of, of how it's distributed. Um, I, I think that's that's an ironclad law um, that we can never lose sight of. I mean, look at the, you know, Plato's Allegory of the Cave again. I've always been fascinated by who are these other mysterious figures in the cave, right? right. The and how does you get his
0: right. – uh, bow- how, how are his – his, his binding, how do, how do they get loosened? He says, somehow I'm let up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a fascinating passage. Yeah, so Simone Weil and, and George Grant, the Canadian philosopher, argue that the good is intervening there, right? So this is a whole debate about how to interpret Plato's form of the good. Is it something like the Tao? Is it something like uh, the force in Star Wars? Is it sort of an impersonal force? Or is it an actual being possessing intellect and will? Uh, and there are these these fascinating, beautiful passages in the Republic. There's another well, or one. Where, I think I don't want to interrupt
0: you, but I think Saint Saint John yeah. would would take that force. Uh, and if you translate Dao into Greek, for instance, you would probably get something like logos. So, so yeah, yeah. whether or not whether yeah, or not yeah. that's in Plato, that is the logos as a as a good, as you said, is is questionable. But I think that's sort of yeah. the point is that Plato can't see it or Socrates can't see it. Right. And that's why, that's why, um, the, uh, the, the Oracle says he's the wisest man in Athens because he knows he doesn't know. So, so like John the Baptist, his, his John the Baptist, who is the height of man born of woman, right. And Socrates is the wisest man of Athens, both through sort of apophasis. It's a negation. And then you have this, this blindness of Socrates that becomes the wisdom of Rome and, and the, the, the denial of St. John that becomes the faith of, so Athens and Jerusalem sort of converge into Rome. And that's mm-hmm. sort of a, I mean, I don't know yeah, if there's yeah, anything there, but the, the beauty of Socrates there is precisely what he cannot know and cannot see.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I'm very really fascinated by those, those passages about the good, uh, and those are really beautiful, fascinating passages. I'm writing a paper now on, on the form of the good. And, uh, you know, Socrates in The Republic, he argues that, I mean, it's interesting he first introduces the idea of justice through the city soul analogy, so that's kind of a shortcut. That's the best way to introduce someone to the idea of justice through the city soul analogy. Later on, he talks about the longer way, right? The longer way would involve demonstrating the existence of the forms and especially the form of the good and showing how all of reality flows from the form of the good. And, uh, you know, in those passages, he has to be really uh, arimantous and Glaucon. They really keep pushing him to, to, to say more about the good. He's very coy. Uh, you know, I think also he, he just acknowledges you know, at several points. He says, I'm really worried. I'm not really up to the task. Uh, this would be a monumental undertaking. Um, but he is he's willing to tell you what the, the the form of the good is not, right? So going back to your, your idea of aphaphasis, right? And uh he is willing to give you this analogy of the sun, right? You know, the famous uh, allegory of the sun, and then the discussion of the divided line. But um yeah, he, he seems to think that um the form of the good is the source of all existence, right? Uh, that it is the source of all intelligibility, that everything we know, we know in light of the form of the good. Um he doesn't really address that specific question that we've been talking about, about whether or not the good is, is a person, right, possessing intellect and will. There is this beautiful passage later on in book, I guess, it's seven, where uh, Socrates is very, very worried about the, those that have the ability and the talent to become philosopher kings, becoming corrupted. And he seems to think that this is almost inevitable, right? And um, it's going to be almost like a miracle, he says, right? It would take something almost supernatural for these people not to be corrupted, by the, the power that they possess, right, to kind of go over the dark side, so to speak. And there's a beautiful image there of the good. He says the good sort of will shelter and protect some of them, right? It will sort of envelop them and, and shelter them and protect right. them. Right? And that, I think It's a beautiful image um, of the good kind of intervening to protect these people, right, that that have the ability to become philosopher kings and to prevent them from going astray. That's beautiful. What book uh, is that? Yeah. It's in book five, and I can find you the specific Stephanus number. You said book five? I think it's in book seven. Uh-huh. He's talking about the education of the philosopher kings. And you see, that's a very, you know, a very, very serious concern that Socrates has there. And I think it's as relevant as ever, which is how can you possess power without being destroyed by it, which is really one of the most important questions raised by biotechnology mm-hmm. as well.
0: So this is right? the, I mean, this gets into the question of singularity and the Kurtzwells of the world. Uh, Kurtzwell famously, you know, takes the same route to work every day in the same regimen of multivitamins yeah. because he's, 500 yeah, he's, a he's a day is honestly <laughs> convinced that he is going to live forever through some sort of mechanical union uh, to yeah. put it crudely. Uh, and so yeah. where does the rubber meet the road ethically? Uh, I mean, it's okay to say it's public that you're a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Right. Uh, the, the Albertus Magnus Institute is not necessarily a Catholic institution. It's welcome to anybody of goodwill. Right. But Obviously, the worst it can get for us as believers is martyrdom, Mm -hmm. which is in a way the best it can get. And Mm -hmm. short of that, we need to do everything to prevent certain things from happening. But there is a place where we would have to die and watch our children die before accepting certain uh, things done to us, right?
1: Namely, the union of anything.
0: Uh, uh, material to buy or sell to our bodies okay
1: yes you know, fukiyama uses this image of, of sorry but your soul just died he takes that from tom wolf right so he gives a series of kind of thought experiments in the near future where people experience a kind of dehumanization so great that they might prefer death to life right so you, that image of your soul dying i think is a powerful yeah. one uh, i think you're making a kind of similar point where you know people might begin to experience a kind of dehumanization so great that they, they might no longer consider life worth living.
0: Right. Right. Um, so where, where is that line in the sand? Uh, we're obviously approaching it. I guess, have we already approached it and how do we know when we yeah. will have
1: approached it? Well, you know, Fukuyama argues in his book that it's probably only going to be in retrospect that we recognize that we've entered a post-human era, right? It's only later on that we can look back and say, okay, the 1970s and the recombinant DNA debates. That's really when we, we crossed the line. Um, you know, Harari seems to think that we've already crossed the line. We've entered a post-human era that the era of, of uh, humanity is coming to end. We're entering a, a post-human era. We may see spe- speciation during our lifetime. We may see some people rightfully claim that they have broken off from the species Homo sapiens, uh, you know, in the 21st century. But you, you uh, haven't crossed Yama. that line,
0: Right. And I, I hope I haven't crossed that.
1: I'm not even going genetic against, no right I'm, I'm, I'm You're not still a human.
0: Uh, I'm still a human. All my kids are still human. And um, I realize that every time you know I listen to Mozart with my seven-year-old daughter, it doesn't get more yeah. human than that. Uh, right. And so – but clearly we are moving as a culture toward the divide. So mm-hmm. I guess the question is how do we know – I mean there's so many ethical questions that we're faced with right now from – vaccines to wearable tech uh, to, to the way we deal with currency. How do we know how far is too far? I love my iPhone and, and to a fault, right? I don't, how do I know when I'm loving it too much, right? When I'm begging for the implant,
1: obviously. Yeah. Yeah. When you're hooked up to a BCI, so brain computer uh, interfaces are coming as well where you'll, you know, Elon Musk and, and, his companies are developing these neural links where you're you're randomly hooked up directly to a cloud-based system. Uh, I don't know if you just saw uh, NPR had a really interesting story. I I can uh, share as well. They just did, there was a, a team of researchers where, uh, you know, they were able to there was a, a person who had a really catastrophic uh, cognitive injury and was was basically suffering from something like locked-in syndrome, and uh, they now have been able to allow him to communicate just by thinking, right? So they're able to essentially kind of read his thoughts. Right, so that's it's beautiful in a way, and that's extraordinary, right? But I think there are very real authoritarian, totalitarian. Okay,
0: so uh, help me understand. What is the life. moral distinction between something like a pacemaker or a cast, mm-hmm. you know, on a broken arm, uh, that is mm-hmm. in a sense wearable tech, and something like right. the the Neuralink or the uh, mm-hmm. nano uh, particles that could be injected into somebody? Uh, and then activated by whatever frequency to do whatever sort of thing you want to imagine. Uh, what is the difference there? Cause clearly you kind of know there's a difference. Like I'm willing to get a cast and I'm not willing to get the uh, neural link just yet.
1: Uh, so I, where do I draw the yeah. line? So I would say that the way that this is traditionally drawn is it's called the therapy versus enhancement distinction. I would say this is is probably the most fundamental distinction in in contemporary ethics of biotechnology. So, uh, you know, getting a cast, for instance, would be a a good example of of a therapeutic medical intervention. We're seeking to restore someone to proper species typical functioning. Uh, Eyeglasses would be a good example if somebody's myopic, right? You give them eyeglasses. You're seeking to restore them uh, to some, you know, 20-20 vision is essentially species typical for human beings, for our, our species Homo sapiens. Um, You know, pacemaker is seeking to restore proper functioning of a person's heart. Um, So, yeah, those would all be, I think, clear instances of of therapeutic interventions. Enhancement, though, what's really interesting, though, is with these biotechnologies is that all of them began as therapeutic interventions and all of them just immediately went in the direction of enhancement. Right. So Sandel has a series of case studies in his book where, uh, you know, he talks about uh, Lionel Messi. Right. Lionel Messi had a hormone deficiency uh, he was growing up in, in Argentina, and uh, without those those interventions, without those those steroids, uh, he never would have been more than maybe five feet tall, something like that. So the Barcelona Football Club came along. They saw he was a very talented player, and they they said, we will pay for his steroid treatments uh, provided that he come train at our, our facility in Barcelona. So at the age of 13, he leaves. He goes off to Barcelona. But who else is going to be interested in those those hormone treatments? It's not just the people that, that have a therapeutic need for them. Right. It's going to be the person that's six one, right, that wants to be 6'6", six six, right. right? Or the person 6'5", that wants to be 7 feet tall, right? So um, the very same technology can be used for enhancement purposes as well. Um, you know, neurocognitive enhancement. Let's say somebody is has an IQ of 80 and we want to bring them up to a species typical level of 120, right? That would be a good thing, right? But who else is going to be interested? The people that are average, right? are at 120 who want to go up to 160, which is considered genius level, right? And then what happens when everybody goes up to 160, you lose the competitive advantage, right? So then you have to go up to 200, right? To have that advantage. And so it becomes a kind of genetic arms race at that point as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So again, I mean, this is, I, maybe it's not the right question to be asking, but what is the line? Because if it, it wasn't, it wasn't probably uh wrong for messi's family to put him on growth hormone at age 12 to get him up to five whatever uh but right. what would be the line there morally
1: for just for a person to consider sure. i would say yeah is this restoring or preserving proper species typical functioning right that's how we define health right i would say health is defined as uh, integrated functioning that is, is speciotypical. typical. So when all the various parts of the body are working. How do you together define species in,
0: typical in a species that is capex universi?
1: Mm-hmm. So and, uh, in other words, so we are meant has, to be
0: God in a certain sense. Uh, we're sort, sort of, of we're sort of built for the whole yeah. of reality. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah, you know, look at those passages in Book Three of the Deanna, which I think you have in mind. There, you know, where Aristotle's talking about human intellect being immaterial. He stops and you can see he's, he's in awe of what he's describing, right? He says, there's something divine about the human intellect. There's something godlike about the human right. intellect, right? This kapox omnia that we're talking about. We have the capacity to take on the forms of all things, right? And to become one with what we yeah. know. And that is so inspiring, right? Lonergan is going to have a lot to say about this. Lonergan is going to say that human beings, uh, we want to know everything about everything. And we will not rest until we know everything about everything. And we have some kind of inchoate, implicit sense of what a total complete comprehensive explanation of reality would be like and we're not willing to settle for anything less than that right and that propels us forward to the beginning of the metaphysics Aristotle says this is the defining mark of what it means to be human human beings reach out for understanding right not just for approximate causes but we seek the ultimate causes but of our reach extends right? our grasp okay. well i mean i think that is a danger but i think um that, that we're constantly overstepping. That is what
0: we want can't really be obtained through our own power. Isn't that, I don't, I think it's a danger if we realize that what we're ultimately after has to be given to us, not manufactured by us. Is that fair to say?
1: What is it it ultimately needs to be given to us? Uh, The whole of reality that we are
0: oriented to to receive, but Mm -hmm. it would seem that, It's just that it would have to be given passionately. We would have to receive it by, Mm -hmm. by our wounds or somebody else's.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would say also, this is going to be a a never ending process. I mean, we're never going to, you know, run out of things to discover, right? We're never going to have this comprehensive, complete, exhaustive understanding reality. Right. I mean, I, I think we, we, it's amazing how far we've come. I mean, look at the human species if we're generous you know, human culture is seven or 8,000 years old, right? I mean, writing is, is seven or 8,000 years old. Look how far we've come in 8,000 years. I mean, we, we put a man on the moon, we've split the atom, we've, you know, deciphered the, the structure of DNA. Uh, it is really awe-inspiring uh, what we've achieved. And yet um, I think the really important question here is, is whether or not we might end up becoming uh, enslaved by, by these creations, right? Whether or not we lose our, our humanity in the process Whether or not we, I mean, the way that Dr. Cass frames it is that uh, he says the best category to understand the biotechnological revolution is is classical Greek tragedy, right? He says this is this heroic but ultimately doomed attempt to master and to dominate the world around us, to dominate nature, including human nature, right? But, right, the, the paradox here is that the more powerful we become in this regard, the more powerless we become to control this process. This process begins to spiral out of control, and we lose the ability to to put any limits upon this process right so that's something i find fascinating this project that begins as this celebration of human freedom autonomy self creation right self fashioning ends up enslaving us all right ends up robbing us of our freedom right and what would be a better understanding of freedom which is not so self undermining
0: yeah that's right and and if if you take the utilitarian project to its furthest extremes it's natural conclusions really you have a world of yeah. not of humans but of beasts and machines and the machines mm-hmm. are ruling the beasts and it's sort of a p- yeah. pick yeah. your I side
1: yeah. uh but, i think of Nietzsche's last men as well you know nietzsche's last men from Zarathustra. Right. i mean they're, they're living a kind of animal existence right they're just focused on having enough food in their belly and a roof over their head and you know, when they hear the words, you know, what is honor? What is glory? What is love? What is death? You know, what yeah. is God? They just sort of blink, right? Because those those concepts don't mean anything to them anymore, right? Uh, that was sort of Alexander kozhev the the French uh, Hegel scholar. That was sort of his nightmare prediction that we were on the path to becoming Nietzsche's last men. Uh, I think Fukuyama, in his book, is terrified that, that Nietzsche and kozhev that some of their predictions may be coming true with biotechnology. You know, Fukuyama is famous for the end of history thesis that liberal democracy has triumphed over all its ideological competitors. Obviously, that was a very controversial thesis. He wrote that in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, Obviously, that, that led to a lot of debate. If you read that book, I think Fukuyama is really very, very worried about the biotechnological revolution. He sees that as the most serious serious threat to the idea of liberal democracy, and especially these ideals of dignity, equality, and rights uh, he sees that really as being what's at stake, right? Uh, in a, in a era, that we may lose those those liberal democratic well, and ideals. Not
0: only lose them, but beg to lose them. I was I was personally surprised yeah. by during the pandemic, uh, you know, and and we don't have to get too much into this, but but I was surprised by the amount of people eager to uh, remove their own face from the view of others. If you don't have a yeah. face, it's very hard to be human and to be treated as human.
1: Yeah, I think of, of Levinas Amanda Levinas, the great French uh, philosopher, as well. I and mean, that's a, a powerful image he keeps using is the face of the other. He thinks this is sort of a source of ethical obligation as the face of the other. Um, you know, just going back to mm-hmm. to your point as well. I think of, of Dostoevsky's, you know, the Legend of the Grand Inquisitor as well. I think is a profound. Uh, you know, obviously it's a story within the Brothers Karamazov. But uh, I think incredibly relevant, you know where you know, he tells the story where Christ appears in 16th century Salamanca during the height of the Inquisition. He's arrested by the Inquisition. He's brought before the Grand Inquisitor. and uh, the Grand Inquisitor, uh, it's interesting Christ never speaks once in that entire uh, right. story. but he's basically, uh, your greatest mistake was to make men free. Mm-hmm. Human beings don't want to be free. They want order, they want structure, they want security. Uh, and that's why they come and lay their freedom at my feet. And that's why they will always love me more than they and love And that's you. why they can be bought exactly. off with bread,
0: right? That's the first temptation that's mentioned in that story is, right. that, is that you can just give them bread. Yeah. And, and the old that's Roman right. dictum, he who pays rules, right? And we're so yeah, willing to right. be ruled in, in exchange for bread. Yeah. How do you um, – so let me ask it this way. Uh, and it does actually relate to the brothers Karamazov. I think Ivan – is the one who is able to love in the abstract, but when it comes to the guy sitting next to him on, on the train or something, he can't, he can't love. And, and really love can only be done in the particular. You, you, you know in the abstract, you, you love in the particular. Uh, and so there's this real counterfeit love floating around these days that is a love for all humanity but not really of you or this guy right here, right? Yeah. It's, it's this person, yeah. you know, or this I'm a good person because I do these things like wear certain things on my face or get certain shots in my arm. But really, heroic virtue or, or actual charity is not to be found necessarily. So, yeah. and I ask this because in the context of, uh, well, John's revelation, right? When he's describing this uh, this beast, and then he's describing the lamb, and it's very, very mm-hmm. similar, and to the point of singularity, the beast is even given the power of speech. There's something, there's something that we create that is given the power mm-hmm. of speech. And it's virtually indistinguishable Mm -hmm. from the lamb, even as he describes it, right? They both have Mm -hmm. these horns and these heads, and they both have a mortal wound from which they've recovered. They're both animals. Mm -hmm. They both um, demand worship. And so how do you tell Mm -hmm. the difference between the beast and the lamb, right? And that is how do you tell the difference between the human and the counterfeit, or how do you tell the difference between love and its counterfeit? And it seems like, If we can give a creature the power to speak, we can even give it the logos, John says, right? We can give it the Mm -hmm. logos. We can make artificial intelligence. But what's not said, Mm -hmm. and which might be the key to understanding all this, is that we can't give a creature the ability to love. And the beast Mm -hmm. does not have the ability to love. The lamb does. Mm
1: -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so
0: how does the question of love fit into this entire discussion of singularity artificial intelligence uh obviously a utilitarian doesn't even have an under i mean i mean how does how does a utilitarian account for love
1: yeah 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 that's a good question right i mean if you think about you know this is a profound question you know the nature of love you know see aquinas will define love as as to seek the good of another for their own sake right and i think you know we've been talking about the libido dominandi we've been talking about the Promethean impulse, right, where, you know, others simply exist for our sake, right? They simply exist in order to be manipulated, dominated, controlled. Uh, they, they, we, we fail to recognize that they possess a good independent of our own, right? And I think this is, uh, you know, fueling the biotechnological project in so many ways. I think in many ways it goes back to Bacon and to Descartes. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, Dr. Cass has written a lot about this as well. Uh, this project, the biotechnological project, is the fulfillment of this Baconian Cartesian dream of, of mastery and domination and control, uh, and just seeing others as as objects to be dominated, to be controlled, to be manipulated. And I, I think you're exactly right to emphasize that it destroys the very possibility of love, right? Which uh, you know I would say is is um, the greatest of all the theological virtues, right? And uh, without which uh, you know human life is is really not worth living. Um, I think another point, going back to your point, too, about Dostoevsky and, and uh, you know, how love and action is a harsh and dreadful thing when compared to love and dreams. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think it's very, very important that it's it's easy to love an abstraction. It's, lo- it's easy to love humanity, capital H. It's very difficult to love one's neighbor right. or one's spouse right? or right? one's <laughs> kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, that that is... Uh, very important point, right? I think this is the danger of ideology, right? So somebody like Walker Percy's written a lot about this. Flannery O'Connor uh, very famously said, it's tenderness that leads to the gas chamber. It's the tenderness of, of the ideologue. It's the tenderness of the the social engineer, right? Uh, you know, Percy, I think, in the Thanatos Syndrome is his final novel, is, is very attuned to this as well. Um, you know, that the, the ideologue wants to kind of ram the, the square peg of human nature into a round hole. And I think this is a, a very real danger of biotechnology as well where we seek to, to radically transform human nature to fit some ideological pattern, right, where we seek to make human beings, you know, some people said it'd be really great if human beings were not so, you know, competitive or violent or aggressive, and we could make them as, as, as you know, meek as lambs, you know, and as gentle as lambs and, and perfectly altruistic. Well, there might be very good reasons as to why human beings, you know, in, in some circumstances, violence is justified, right, in self-defense or in justified military conflict, right, and if you were as gentle and as meek as a lamb, right, I think there are they're terrifying totalitarian possibilities here as well. I mean, who's going to be interested in these these technologies that allow for mood control and and um, you know mind control, thought control? It's going to be you know certain authoritarian regimes that to be very very interested in these technologies. Um, I think yeah, there, there's a lot there's to, a, lot a lot to talk to about up. here.
0: I think we're going to need a few of these. Yeah. Are you terrified of yeah. raising children in in this? current of philosophy that we're swimming in here
1: or against? Uh, I think there are, yeah, very important concerns. Um, I think it is, it is so important though, to see, uh, you know, having a child is a metaphysical act of hope. It's, it's an affirmation of the goodness of existence. And I think it's so important to, to affirm the goodness of existence I and mean, you see a thing of Hamlet, right? When Hamlet has is, is lost all hope in humanity and he tells Ophelia, he says, you know, what wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? You know, get thee to a nunnery, right? Uh, that, that he's given up on humanity. My daughters and, hear that every, every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I have a two-year-old daughter and, and uh, you know, I, you've got uh, four kids. I got right four or, and one on the I'm way. Sure. Yeah.
0: Three daughters and a Beautiful. son and then one to be determined. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's such a, an act of hope, right? It's, it's, it's a metaphysical affirmation of, of the goodness of existence. It is. And I think it's it's so important, and um, I think there is a real possibility for counter witness here as well. Um, you know, I think that we may be those those people that don't genetically engineer our children. We may be those people that don't use various forms of artificial reproductive technology. We don't take soma. We don't use VR. Uh, I think there's a real profound. Do you think possibility. We'll be permitted to do that
0: realistically? Uh, do you think we'll be permitted to be those people? Like, I think we can sort of hope for this Amish exemption, but it's yeah. probably not going to be there,
1: right? Well, there may be, you know, coercion can take very subtle forms, right? So let's say the other kids at your your children's school have undergone neurocognitive enhancement and your children are struggling to keep up. Let's say they're really bright. You know, they're really, you know, wonderful students, hard workers. They, they you know, are really bright, uh, but they've not undergone genetic enhancement. And they're really struggling to keep up. Are you going to feel pressure as a father to to enhance them? Probably, right?
0: I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, that's why I'm going to homeschool, first of all, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all.
1: Right. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. You'll see in your job, and your career, right? You're struggling to keep up. Uh, so I think coercion can take very subtle yep. forms. And, uh, you know, the moment that some people like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, whoever, they start to go down this path, there's going to be tremendous pressure on all of us. Uh, you know, once we see especially so-called elites begin to go down this path and and begin to, uh, you know, seize the competitive advantages that come with it, um, I think the way that the rest of us respond is going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, there's a couple different scenarios here. I mean, one is where we have a kind of, um, bottom-up revolution where the rest of us demand access to these technologies, which is very interesting because in the past, you know, when we think about eugenics in the, the 20th century, we think about the Nazis, right? We think about somebody being dragged, kicking and screaming to some research lab to be sterilized or euthanized. Um, and, and obviously that, that is horrific and it's easy to see what's wrong with that, right? Because it's state sponsored, it's violent, it's coercive. I think in the 21st century, we might see what's called liberal eugenics, which is a very different uh, phenomenon where instead of people being drag kicking and screaming, they're actually kicking down the doors of the hospitals and the research labs and demanding access to this technology and saying, how dare you keep this from us? This is, is the ultimate human right is to engage in this project of, of self creation and self fashioning. And this should be accessible to, to everyone. Not Why just do you to, think we haven't
0: you, seen enough sci-fi movies to know this
1: is all just a bad idea? That's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I think we, as human beings, I think we are, we're insatiable, right? I mean, we, we talked about our desire to know, um, I think we have power. It's very difficult for us not to exercise it, not to use it. Um, we see this time and time again, right? Um, you know, you look at nuclear weapons, uh, you know, they had very legitimate concerns when they set off that first bomb at Alamogordo, uh, Oppenheimer and others were very concerned it was going to ignite the atmosphere. They went ahead anyways. Yeah. Um, you know uh, we self-control self restraint is not our greatest strength as a species but also that's something that maybe has propelled us forward right we we've made such progress as we we indicated um and yet the question is can we utilize this newfound power right this godlike power without losing our humanity in the process right and and being uh, Enslaved or destroyed by it. So
0: this is an interesting question. It's actually where I see a lot of hope, at least tactical hope. And that is, yeah. uh, you've mentioned the names a few times now, but uh, Teal and Musk, and yeah. they're they're sort of on the forefront of uh, of this mm-hmm. whole thing. But in a way, yeah. they might be on the right side. They might be there. There's a funny meme that I saw recently, and it had a picture of Bill Gates, and then it had a picture of Elon Musk. And it was mm-hmm. basically that everybody's afraid that Bill Gates is going to put a microchip in them. And then you have mm-hmm. Elon Musk saying, I'm literally going to put an implant in your brain. And everybody's like, rah, rah, you know, awesome. Good for Elon. It's a very yeah. strange thing. Yeah. Uh, but but mm-hmm. there is a sort of trust that the census fidelium has in, in the likes of Elon Musk and the likes of Peter Thiel, yeah. that they might just be the yeah. good guys trying who beat yeah, yeah. the bad guys to this technology in a way that preserves yeah, yeah. and saves humanity uh for for generations to come. Is that
1: possible? Yeah, I saw really, So I saw a very interesting debate between Peter Thiel and uh, William Herlbert from Stanford Medical School, who's a very interesting Catholic bioethicist who served on the President's Council on Bioethics. And it was about whether or not we should see death as a preventable disease. We see death as a disease. as something that could be prevented. So this is another topic we haven't really brought up, which is radical life extension. right? So we in the, the near future may have the ability to radically slow down the aging process. right? So we have, in a way, maybe have found the genetic shortcut to not immortality, but immortality. So immortality would be where you could still die from you know, blunt force trauma, from a gunshot, from a car accident. You wouldn't die from old age. The herd, right, you we could die couldn't... from
0: the culling <laughs> of the herd, right?
1: <laughs> or... the culling of the herd. Yeah, so that might be the other scenario: <laughs> euthanasia or suicide. That Spookyama argues that suicide is going to become the most common form of death in the 21st century in an age of radical life extension, where people, when faced with an unending but meaningless life, decide to opt out. Right, and euthanasia might be another possibility. So, involuntary active euthanasia may be a very real possibility because what's going to happen? the earth's going to get really crowded really quickly. People stop dying, right? And there's going to be all sorts of, of social and political implications of that. Uh, it's going to transform careers, right? If if you graduate from college and not only are your parents still working, but your grandparents and your great grandparents, right? And what do you do for the next, you know, 50 years? Do you just take Soma and play video games? There's a lot of people who are doing that now, right? Yeah, they, are. Yeah, they are. And that may just simply accelerate, right? So yeah, we need meaningful work, right? We need, Uh, We need love and we need meaningful work, right? I I think these are two of the deepest needs that we have as human beings. And if if that's not being satisfied, some people or very many of us, I think, will fall into despair and no longer regard life as worth living. But um, so, yeah, Thiel was arguing, yes, we should see death as a disease, as something to be treated as a preventable uh, harm that could be uh, delayed indefinitely. And I think this raises, uh, you know, really profound questions here. And Dr. Kass in particular has written about this in a really profound way. Uh, He has a great essay I recommend called The Case for Mortality that we will read in the course and we'll discuss in the course, where Dr. Kass argues that death is a gift and it's a blessing. Mortality is is a gift and a blessing. Uh, And we should be grateful that we die. And if given the chance to pursue something like immortality, we should reject it. Right. He's, ultimately, he's going to give something like what we might call the argument from desire. We see this in Augustine. We see this in Pascal. I think we see this in a figure like Luigi Giussani, uh, the Italian Catholic uh, priest and philosopher as well, which is the, the idea that uh, what we ultimately seek is not just more of this life. right? Dr. Cass argues that you could have an extra 10 years, an extra 20 years, an extra 50 years, an extra 100 years, an extra 1,000 years, 1, years, and that's never going to satisfy the deepest right. desires. Well, that's the heart. word,
0: is deeper. Consider. You don't want more. You want deeper.
1: That's right. We want, he basically argues the kingdom of heaven, right. right? He says that what we want is right. to division. to the vision. This right? is a great conversation,
0: but if it went on forever, it it would be indistinguishable from hell. Uh, right. Only because it's not what we're finally made for. Not because you're an unpleasant right. person yeah. to speak with, but because it's not That's what part- we're finally after. And so we're almost trying to solve a problem with longevity that's really a question of depth and we could be doing a lot more by pursuing beauty for instance than by pursuing Mm -hmm. uh a life extension
1: that's right yeah so you basically what we want is not more of this life we want something completely other right we we basically we seek the kingdom of heaven right and uh we seek the beatific vision and there's nothing in this life, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy the deepest desires of the human heart. You know, we see this time you get that promotion, you get that job, you get that degree, you get that relationship, whatever it is. And there may be that initial elation, there may be that initial satisfaction, but it very quickly it turns to that kind of restlessness comes back, that dissatisfaction, that yearning, that longing, right? That that uh, desire for something more to be something That's right. more. Right. That's something we will uh, never. The
0: transitive will never be able to manufacture. That's something we'll never be able to make in a way that's that's printable. Right? It uh, because because we're after the transcendent. We're after we're after something we can't create. We're after the creator. That's the dilemma of the creature: is that we have been created. We're like Pinocchio. We want to be the real boy, but that's got to come from something higher than us.
1: That's right. Yeah, there's another really profound essay we're going to read in the class called Restless Souls by Peter Augustine Lawler, who was uh, on the President's Council for Bioethics as well. He published this in the New Atlantis, and he's very sanguine. I mean, I was really struck by this where he says, you know, I'm not worried about something like Soma. I'm not worried about, you know, uh," he says, yeah, we may hit rock bottom. We may end up in something like Plato's cave, but we will eventually escape and we will ascend. And he argues that even something like Soma would not make us content in the world. It would not make us less restless, it'd only make us more restless. And this is just one more attempt in a long series of attempts to make us perfectly at home in the world. And he says that, you know, human beings are homo viator. We are pilgrims. Starr, we are tourists. We're, yes, go- we're 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 on we're on the way to somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this this will never be our our we'll never feel completely and perfectly at home or at peace in this life and in this world. And these drugs they, they may, you know, very briefly give you some kind of feeling of elation, and yet uh, you're gonna have to keep increasing the dosage and you're gonna become increasingly frantic and restless. And it's only gonna make you feel more homeless and more restless um, rather than, and than unhealthy, certain, Right. You know, I mean, I'm
0: not a doctor, but it seems like you burn out those receptors pretty quickly. You need more and more of them. And yeah.
1: right? exactly. You're gonna be chasing that high, right? Yeah. So you're gonna be chasing that high, you're gonna be taking increasingly powerful dosages. I think, you know, I think the possibility of addiction here is going to be very, very strong. I think initially you may take these to deal with, you know, really serious clinical depression or grief. Uh, but very quickly there's going to be a temptation to use these to deal with just the minor inconveniences in life. you're stuck in traffic or you're having a tough day and you say, you know, I'm just done with this, right. I'm going to pop a pill. Um, so, yeah, I think you know we will definitely we're going to read those casts and law their essays in the course yeah give me and, give me real uh,
0: quick, give us an elevator pitch. Why should somebody take your course i haven't I haven't checked on the numbers. we just opened uh, registration uh, uh general registration and I, and I I assume it's filling up quickly but wh- if if there is still space available, why should somebody take yeah. your course? Why should anybody take your course?
1: yeah, I would say these are the most important issues of our time, right I would say these bioethical issues. These issues in biotechnology are going to radically transform all of our lives. That the social, political, ethical implications uh, of of these technologies are right now and will continue uh, and will accelerate um, and will continue to radically transform all of our lives in every possible way, Uh, whether that's our relationships, whether that's our careers, whether that's um, how we conceive of ourselves. Um, I I think there really are no more important issues. you know, than these issues that we're going to focus on, and that, that's why I've chosen to really, uh, you know, uh, devote my my research and my study to them in, in such a, a focused way. Uh,
0: it will be an honor to give you the beginnings of an army because I feel like that's what you need. I think I think you, you you might or might not admit this, but you're probably a lone wolf in your field, and these ideas need to be reproduced as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, I I think there is a really vibrant uh, group of Catholic bioethicists in the United States and elsewhere. You know, if you look at uh, the Pontifical Academy for Life or you look at, you know, various Catholic bioethicists, there are people doing serious work here. I think there is a growing awareness that we do need to focus more on the ethics of biotechnology. I think um, in the last five years or so, I think people, even a place like here at Harvard, I mean, the focus this year, the conference, every year they put on a major conference Two years ago, it was brain death. Last year, was euthanasia. This year, it's, it's the ethics of biotechnology, right? So I, I was talking about this stuff, you know, five years ago, and 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 it, it's really kind of clicked. I think for everybody, even people, you know, here at Harvard Medical School, they're saying yes, th- this is the most important issue of, of our time, right? We need. To Let me ask this. you this
0: because um, I've I've noticed this about you, like Saint Thomas, who says, uh, you know, seldom affirm, never deny, always distinguish but you're very good about giving your intellectual interlocutors even your intellectual opponents the best read much much like the angelic Absolutely. doctor and as you said that's that's a virtue of collegiality that not only Absolutely. keeps you employed but it's 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 a great way to have a discussion and move move everybody toward the truth how would you say that uh let's call them the utilitarians have mm-hmm. um imparted something beneficial to the intellectual tradition something something that that we can respect or even imitate
1: yeah that's a good question i I think as i said before um you know when you're faced with situations where no matter what you do there's going to be some harm inflicted or some you're not going to have this very easy you know clean clear resolution where everybody just you know walks away and you know if you read some ethics textbooks or bioethics textbooks you know you have these case studies and everything just works out perfectly and everybody walks away you know happy it, it, the real cases are never like that right and i think the utilitarian focus on harm reduction you know risk reduction um, you know minimizing the amount of suffering in the world you know that that is that is a noble ideal i think it is is a valuable ideal i think the problem with utilitarianism is that at least as as formulated, very quickly take you in a very, very dark direction, right? Because there's really no limits to what you can do to maximize utility, right? And, uh, you, you know, very quickly, you know, utilitarians will famously argue there are no intrinsic moral evils, uh, you know, whether that's slavery, you know, Arm Harrow wrote a famous paper defending, he said slavery could be justified in some circumstances uh, if a slave society were better off than a society in which, you know, slavery was not present, Um, You know, it could be sexual assault, it could be murder. I mean, utilitarians will famously argue that, you know, in some cases, murder may be ethically obligatory, right? You may have an obligation to to intentionally kill an innocent person, to scapegoat an innocent person, to kill someone you know who's innocent, uh, to maximize overall uh, utility. So it can very quickly take you in, in a very dark direction. This is often referred to as the problem of injustice. Um. So I I think there's something really fascinating about utilitarianism that it starts out with premises that sound very appealing and some, you know, very, you know, if you talk about the greatest good for the greatest number, that that sounds initially, there's a prima facie, you know, uh, sense that this is is valuable, this is important, and yet uh, it can take you in a very dark direction very quickly. I think there are some really important differences between the utilitarian notion of, uh, you know, the maximum that which is maxim that which is maximized and a kind of Thomistic conception of the common good, that which is perfective of each individual. I think utilitarians are not very attentive at all to how utility is distributed. Right, so the, the overall amount may double, but that may be concentrated in the hands of a very small number of people. And so, I think their focus on benevolence is is good, but it, it tends to be too. Uh, exclusive and they neglect justice, they neglect non maleficence, right? As ethical principles. Right. So yeah, beneficence is very important as as an ethical principle, right? Maximizing the amount of, of well being in the world or goodness. And yet there are very important limits to what we can do to maximize well being and if a human person were to
0: say to a utilitarian, as a human person, I would not like to be considered a utility or an object, right? An ob- or an ob- object an ob- right. a th- something in the way, or something fit for use. Right. What does the utilitarian right. say? They say, "No, you are you are an right. object fit for use, and so am I." Right. Was yes. that what they said? Yeah,
1: yes. yeah. I mean, they want to reduce everything to so-called utils, right? So you know these these metric units that can be added up and aggregated and commensurated. I think there's also there's a very impoverished moral psychology as well that <laughs> all of us. In every single action we are seeking utils, right? It's Mother Teresa, you know, and the Wall Street trader, right? They're both seeking to maximize utils, right? Um, and all these utils can be added up, right? So I, I don't really find that that plausible. But um yeah, I mean I think theory, though, this right? is a fun little concern. It's sort of like it's a cute theory, right? It's but I don't understand why it's
0: taken seriously. I don't I mean, I, I do want to like you try to yeah. give them the best read, but it's not. It's it's beyond not plausible. It's just sort of, sort of funny. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I think another major problem here is the so-called problem of measurement. Right? How do we really measure love, friendship, beauty, truth, wisdom? Right? These things, by their very nature, seem to resist measurement. Uh, Michael Sandel has a good book on this uh, that I recommend called "What Money Cannot Buy," where the things that make life worth living, by their very nature, resist. So the, quantification, the utilitarian
0: would 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 disavow the existence of anything transcendent. Is that correct?
1: Well, no, I think it depends on who you talk to. Anything there without are,
0: measure is what I'm asking for a utilitarian.
1: Um, I would say no. I would say they, they would have to be committed to the idea that these goods, right. Uh, can be measured. They can be quantified. They can be aggregated. They can be commensurated. Uh, and they can be ranked, okay, so what, right? And that's what, essential- is it, what does a
0: utilitarian do in the face of existential catastrophe or ineffable beauty on either of those two sides of the spectrum? Because there, are, there are these these things that happen to all of us as humans, or that should happen to all of us as humans, that that are yeah. either ineffably catastrophic and and um, sort of existentially horrifying. Uh, we call yeah. them, you know, as Catholics, right? The cross or or the uh or, or on the on the converse, this is the most beautiful, ineffably transcendent experiences. Yeah. Uh what does the utilitarian do with either of those things besides try their best to ignore them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think they may look to the individual and ask the individual how much weight do you give to this? You know, how many of of your preferences does this satisfy? You know, what? How would you weigh this on some type of of scale? Would you assign this? You know, a, you know ninety eight point seven five four three one. You know, compared to this this long lasting friendship that you have, I and mean, yeah, I mean, I think it becomes uh, increasingly implausible, right? I mean, you tried to rank, you know, the love that you had for various people in your life, right, and say, so, well, th- this is a non. Uh, This is um, a good which resists uh, quantification by its very nature, right? You don't understand the nature of love. You don't understand the nature of human beings and and the infinite value that they possess. Uh, You know, if you begin to assign this monetary value to them, uh, MLK has a famous speech he gave back in the 60s. It's called The Measure of a Man, where he added up the the material composite. You know, he talked about how much iron there is in the human body and the, the amount of calcium and the amount of potassium, you know, and this was 1965, maybe something like that. And it came out to $8 and 21 cents or something like that. Right. And I said, is, is that really the measure of human life? Right. Is you know, if I mean, that also shows just the limitations of that kind of material explanation yep. as well. Uh, and, um, right. We recognize that, that human beings have, have infinite value. Right. Um, and uh, that we are called to eternal union with, and crew. because
0: that's true, I think it would be a very palatable thing for many people to hear that they haven't heard. I, I think I think like you said, that the utilitarians this is the air we're all breathing, the water we're all swimming in. And so there is a right. sort of duty that we have to to get the message out that there's more to this than what John Stuart Mill would have us believe.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Well, this is.
0: Uh, I got a lot more to talk to you about. Uh, would you first question? Would you be a regular on this podcast? I think you would enrich it tremendously. I hope you enjoyed yourself, by the way. And we.
1: I did. Before. No, I'm. A, I have a passionate interest in these topics, and and uh, we can we can discuss you know what what form that might take, uh, you know, coming back on and, and discussing these topics. Well, yeah. Now. Ultimately, uh, I mean,
0: the the Albertus Magnus Institute exists uh to to provide these liberating ideas that generate liberated persons in a way that doesn't yes. require uh boatloads of debt that really right. it's, that's it. The, the debt you know and the the cost of of college it's just it's so anti-liberal and so that's what right, we're trying right. to do and and
1: we're just honored to have you as a part of that uh so we're looking thank forward thank to your you. course very grateful to be here. I was looking at the other courses and yeah, very impressive set of courses. I was really happy to see a course on Rene Girard. I'm very interested in, in Rene Girard. Well, uh,
0: you can uh, join great. us if you want. Uh, yeah. Jump in, jump in whenever you want. We'll set you up with that. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think there's a few courses like yours in particular, bioethics and Aquinas and Rene Girard's theater of envy that would be really well paired, like a fine wine and cheese. So if there's any fellows listening, who want to take both of those uh, by all means, if they're not full, which yeah. they might be. So, uh, Dr. Timothy Ferlin, thank you. Uh, it's going to be a great class and Magnus dot org to sign up today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for having me.
0: To get more or to help liberate the liberal arts, visit magnusinstitute.org today. Copyright 2021, the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, all rights reserved.